Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We've had a lot of conversations on this show recently about the growth of what many people perceive as a dangerous new right-wing radicalism. We had my friend Ann Nelson on the show talking about Shadow Network, her new book, uh, Frederick Finkelstein, one of the world's leading authorities on fascism from uh, the New School in New York, has been on the show to talk about what he at least perceives as the reappearance of fascism. And these books and these studies keep on coming. Uh, Cynthia uh, Miller Idris is the author of uh, a very provocative new book, Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right. It's a book about the culture of the far right and particularly the relationship of this new far right with young people. Uh, Cynthia, let me throw out something perhaps that might be, might sound slightly absurd, but whilst reading your book, it suddenly occurred to me, uh, is far right thinking, this new nationalism, is it the new rock and roll? Is it shocking uh, respectable elders like you and I and much of our audience? I think that's a really good way to frame it, unfortunately. And first of all, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here and have the chance to talk about the book. Um, the, you know, I, I often describe what's happening in far right with far right youth scenes as, as their success in weaponizing youth culture. They've basically made themselves the countercultural uh, youth space to resist the mainstream and to resist what they see as uh, mainstream imposition of, of either what they say is political correctness or or uh, overly you know snowflake like um, kinds of uh, uh, impositions of of uh, accommodations and so they have weaponized kind of the the wit and the humor the irony the satire the creation of memes and made it fun for kind of a generation of young people to to troll, to harass, uh, to dox, to do all kinds of things online that um, that make them feel more powerful as well. So it is, I think, I don't know if it's exactly the same equivalent as the sort of rock and roll, but in the in the sense of weaponizing youth culture and making it the countercultural space, they have definitely been successful at doing that. A few weeks ago, we also had the author Kurt Anderson uh, on the show. I'd actually interviewed him in 2011 about a piece he'd written back then about the way in which fashion and culture and music hasn't changed over the last 50 years since the birth of rock and roll. Um, is one of the challenges of the progressive left to also somehow figure out a way to reinvent itself so that it can counter counterculturalism of the new right? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a really tricky thing to do. I mean, how do you, how do you recapture um, the, the sensibilities? How do you recapture the cultural edginess or the kind of being provocative nature of, 
um, of of a youth of a generation that feels that you know the pro, you know to be provocative they go to the right um, that that's how they kind of lash out. So yes, I do think that one of the mistakes the left makes sometimes is understandably being very serious about um, you know about interventions about counter war you know countering radicalization uh, and some of the really successful approaches I've seen in Germany, for example, have used humor. Um, there's a brand uh, called Torsteiner, which has marketed, you know, clothing to the far right with coded symbols. And a group came up with a, you know, they reversed the name, they made a play on words with it, called it Storkheiner, which means, you know, a stork, basically created a character, and then started sending that big character, it looks like a big bird, but a stork, out to protest to kind of make the, make others laughable. Um, there was a protest where uh, groups, anti-racist groups, lined the streets of a far-right protest march and turned it into a fundraiser. So they had gotten pledges and they got people to stand along the side with, with signs that said, thank you, you've raised 10,000 euros, you know, for anti-racist work in this community. And then, you know, another half a mile, thank you, you've raised 25,000 euros. And first of all, they did actually raise money, but it also kind of befuddled you know, the, the marchers who thought, do we keep going forward? Do we go, you know, what are we doing? Are we, uh, and so, you know, I'm not saying those are necessarily the right approaches, but they are creative approaches to try to use, you know, some alternative, something humorous, um, something creative to, to try to combat the far right instead of just, you know, developing curriculum and implementing it in formal schools or classrooms. I think something may have gone seriously wrong with American progressives if they need to relearn humor from their German <laughs> contemporaries. But it's my little anti-German joke here. Uh, uh, you begin um, your book, uh, Cynthia, with uh, the, the hate in the homeland, with the definition of what homeland is. You said it's the native land, the fatherland a state or area set aside to be a state for people of a particular national, cultural, or racial origin. Why has this idea of the homeland, and again, it's perhaps appropriate that we just had a conversation about Germany, uh, why has the idea of the homeland become such a provocation? Why has it become a countercultural meme on the right? Well, the homeland itself, I mean, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to use that word and why I put that definition in there is because it became such a normalized term. We even now have a Department of Homeland Security, right, in this country for the last 20 years. And um, But I think that the term itself and the concept of it is very much rooted in an idea of ownership over territory. And a lot of what's happening in the extreme far right, and particularly in the white supremacist side, um, really go, comes back to this issue of belonging and the idea that some people belong to a particular piece of land more than others and that we can defend or should defend that land against the incursions from others. And so the anti-immigrant sentiment is rooted in an idea of belonging. It goes back also to the Nazi era, as you just mentioned, this idea of blood and soil, that there is some kind of racial or blood-based identification with territory. And so when you see things like calls to a white ethno state or uh, 
in Europe, you know, calls to create autonomous national zones that are so-called no-go zones for, for immigrants or foreigners. Um, those are all territorial concepts that link race and identity and territorial belonging in ways that I think we sort of overlook sometimes when we just look at the, you know, at the actions of the extreme far right as being about um, race or anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. They're also about territory. Cynthia, where do you draw the boundary between, and I'm using this term myself, I'm not suggesting you use it, acceptable right-wing thinking on nationhood and immigration and unacceptable, perhaps the difference between the right and the far right. I mean, it's perfectly legit legitimate, isn't it, to be unsympathetic to the idea of mass immigration. It's absolutely, even, even radical right, I mean, people will disagree on this, but I think even, even the radical right, you know, we may find radical right ideas troubling uh, to democracy, but they're certainly not illegal and they fall within the bounds of free speech and protected speech, particularly in this country, which has very liberal free speech um, protections. When I talk about the far right, I am talking about the spectrum, but mostly I'm talking about the extreme far right. And in this book, I'm talking about the extreme far right, which is really outside of the bounds of what any democracy can accept. So it's anti-democratic. It is working against the protection of minority rights. It works against the freedom of the, of, of the press or freedoms of speech. It is authoritarian and promotes dehumanizing ideas about hierarchies between people, um, whether superiority by men, by white people, or by Christians over others. Um, and that valorizes violence, um, you know, often espouses conspiracy theories and then valorizes violence in the name of those conspiracy theories or in the attitudes and ideals. So, you know, there is, again, in Europe and places like Germany, they do legally distinguish between radical right and extreme right crimes. Um, and extreme right crimes are those that are, are, you know, motivated by something that is outside the bounds of the Constitution. And that has very much shaped my thinking on it. I use the term far right because it's the, I think, the best bad term we have. Um, and it, because it includes not only the white supremacist fringe, but also the anti-government militia, the seditionists, the single issue extremists like anti-abortion uh, violent activists. Uh, so all of those are part of the far right, even though the majority of violent acts within the far right come from white supremacist extremists. What's the relationship, Cynthia, between President Trump and this uh, new global or certainly Americanized uh, far right? Is he, uh, is he blurring the, the distinction, the boundary between acceptable conservatism, traditional conservatism, and this extreme right wing uh, ideology and its hostility to immigrants and its disdain for democracy? Well, there's a couple things I think to unpack about President Trump's relationship to the far right. And one is that globally, Trump's election was part of a trend of other populist nationalist uh, leaders, as you've heard from others on this show, uh, who really position ordinary people against elites. That's a really important part of what they do. And so there's a strong anti-elitism and that translates then into some support sometimes for anti-immigration, the argument that elites are promoting multiculturalism. There's a whole uh, range of things that populist nationalism does. And so we've seen that across Europe and 
places like Brazil and India, elsewhere in the world growing. Uh, so it's part of that. And the second thing I think that's important to know is that the, the rising number of hate groups in the US predates his election. So we were seeing a surge in hate groups and hate activity under, as a reaction to really President Obama's election um, and a kind of racist backlash at that point. So what happened though was when President Trump came in and used language and has used language that legitimizes or is seen as legitimizing, uh, you know, white supremacist or racist ideas by referring to Mexicans as rapists, ra you know, or or uh, extreme anti-immigrant sentiments that come across from that from that administration. It has been perceived as legitimizing or as seen as normalizing and mainstreaming um, some of these sentiments. So whether it's actually mobilized, I think is still. Um, In your opinion, you know, though, Cynthia, is, is, is Trump uh, an opportunist or a believer in this stuff? Oh, I wish I knew. I wish I knew the well, answer. Well, what's your I guess? Uh, you, you, you've been studying this. Do you get the sense that he actually believes it or is he just using it because uh, these are the people who show up to his rallies? Uh, we also um, we also had Carl Hoffman on the show who who who, who followed Trump around uh, for a year, and he writes brilliantly about the nature of Trump's rallies and the kind yeah. of attracts. Clearly, there's a strong bond between Trump and his live followers. Do you get the sense that Trump really believes this, or is he laughing behind these people's back? I don't think he's laughing behind these people's backs, but I it's hard to know what he believes because he just you know, he, he, he changes position. He's about, you know, he says things. Well, he doesn't change are, his position yeah. on this stuff. He's never, he, he's never, he, he's never changed his position on immigration, on the wall. Uh, Cynthia. Uh, Since you've, he's been president. Yeah. Right. You've, you've yeah. written about um, the Boogaloo boys who have become the, the kind of media pinup for this new mm -hmm. right wing radicalism. Who are these people? It's a, it's a very clever meme. I don't know yeah. whether yeah, it's then... very clever in, in practice. The Boogaloo is a perfect example of what I mean by the kind of youth-driven phenomenon. So it started as a joke um, online among teenagers about that 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 made connected the idea of a second civil war back to the idea of uh, you know a, a bad 1984 breakdancing movie um, that had been so widely panned for being too similar to the original that um, that they basically compared it to something like you know, a second civil war. So they, so that it was, and it had the word boogaloo in it. So that term became referenced as boogaloo, but eventually that, that concept motivated real life action among adults, not just teenagers. And so you saw starting uh, really in, in January in Richmond with the second amendment protests, but then into the shelter in place protests and then the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer. Um, you know, we had, uh, a number of uh, Boogaloo-type militia events that are calling for, you know, protests against government tyranny, calling for revolution, using revolutionary iconography and images, using um, Hawaiian shirts because they sound, you know, it's a big luau, sounds like Boogaloo, and that references, you know, a luau where there's pig roasts and violence against the police as a slur uh, incorporated into that. So a number of ways in which that meme evolved and continues to evolve. But I think one of the important things is that it, um, it did mobilize people to come out in the street in large numbers and protest uh, and threaten violence. And so it's not just, you can't just write them off as 
as kids joking online or as just, just internet trolls. What they do has consequence for real life action and potential violence. The, the gender question, of course, comes up here. Boogaloo boys, they're not boogaloo girls. I know, I know there are some girls yeah. who follow them. Uh, I just saw a recent poll that suggested that in Iowa, which is the heartland, I guess, of America, very symbolic, Trump is 21 points up with uh, men and Biden's 20 points up with women. Is this rise of this new right-wing radicalism, is it a manifestation of a certain crisis of maleness in the post-industrial globalized world? I know that's a broad question. I know for sociologists, they can spend their careers investigating (laughs) it. But um, is is there something here about this this profound shift in in our notions on gender and the way in which many men, particularly working class white men, have been marginalized by our culture? Yeah, I think the, well, first, the important thing to note, one one important thing to note is that women's participation in the far right is increasing and has increased. So we have seen that both within the leadership of far right elected parties across Europe, and then even in uh, the kind of softer forms of entry for the so-called alt-right, the the YouTube videos and that are run by women promoting kind of homesteading and homeschooling and being a good traditional wife and, you know, in ways I mean, that are the, the, anti, the, the anti-vaxxers as well as uh, QAnon. And the, yeah, and this blend of anti-vaxxers and QAnon and the strange new coalitions that are forming, women are, I think, shouldn't be dismissed for the role that they play. Even in the violent fringe, we've seen some recent arrests uh, on the part of terrorists who included women in the cells. But obviously still the vast majority of violence uh, and the vast majority of participation in these groups are men, are, are led by men, are caused by men. And so I think there's a couple different things going on. One is growing, um, you know, kind of, as you said, the crisis, whether that's a crisis of masculinity or the ways in which these groups market themselves to a kind of uh, masculinity and a heroic engagement and defense and restoration and uh, protection and, um, you know, saving one's people or one's territory, one's race, one's land, all of those kinds of things. Um, brotherhood, being a soldier, being a warrior, mm. all of that iconography, symbols, messages are incredibly strong in these movements. But there's also a lot of intersections in ways that I think haven't been paid attention to for a long time and are now starting to uh, between the world of kind of men's rights and misogynist movements and white supremacist and other far-right movements. So we're seeing, and I think gradually people started to realize in law enforcement, intelligence communities, and also analysts, as we started seeing, you know, shooter after shooter uh, show up at a yoga studio or a sorority or wherever it was. And then later it, found, it turns out that, there, that some of those manifestos um, did have also racist or white supremacist ideas in them. And so there's more intersections in these spaces than than people have been, um, uh, you know, have really acknowledged. And so why that is right now at a moment when we also have kind of resurgent, you know, homesteading retreat to desires for simpler life, a desire to return to some kind of, um, you know, way to make things great again, let's say, you know, all of that harkens back to this kind of traditional sense of 
some fantasy idea about what things used to be like, say in the 1950s. Yeah. I think I ultimately think we, yeah. can, uh, we can blame uh, Rousseau for this. I always like to blame <laughs> Rousseau for everything that's gone wrong in the world over the last 250 years. This nostalgia, this I, this, this, this delusion, I think, of a, of a, yeah. of a, of a, a simpler history. Uh, Cynthia, your book is in part a manual, and, and I know a lot of your work uh, is designed to explain to parents how to essentially safeguard their children from this new global far right, which has done a very good job, for better or worse, seducing kids, particularly online. Um, again, coming back to my original question about the global far right being the new rock and roll, how careful do parents need to be in terms of glamorizing this by banning it, just as rock and roll in the in the 50s got glamorized because it got banned by a whole generation of conservative worried parents? Yeah, in general, I think banning is always a bad idea if you think that the goal of banning or it's or what it will achieve is preventing people from being a part of the far right. It does tend to backlash. And even in schools where I've been in that banned, you know, schools are, you know, Germany where I was studying around the time that I was there were banning the number 88 from display because it stands for the eighth letter of the alphabet for HH for Heil Hitler. And kids started wearing t-shirts that said 100 minus 12 or 87 plus one. I mean, they will immediately gameplay, code change. More, more, more German else. humor, Cynthia. Right, exactly, right? So, the, I mean, I did live there for a long time. So my previous work was based in Germany before this book. Um, and a lot of my observations of youth culture as it was mainstreamed in the far right came from there and then emerged here. Um, but I will say, so I think banning is a bad idea if you think it's to set an outcome that will change you know, pe prevent people from going down that path. It does set some lines in the sand for everybody else. And so I think it does establish some norms. It helps, you know, a school understand what we won't tolerate, what we won't believe in. But for parents, I think, yes, I think banning is a bad idea. It's always better to try to have a conversation and, you know, an ounce of prevention helps a lot more. Once someone's down that pathway, it's much harder to get them back. And, uh, and, and Cynthia, very simply, if, if there are some younger people watching this, w w what would you advise them to do when they come across these memes, when they, they read about the Boogaloo bo boys and girls and it seems all too seductive? I think it's important for kids to understand and for parents or teachers or any other adults to understand how seductive, I think is exactly the word, that these are deliberately, you know, persuasive and manipulative. And online manipulation takes many forms. And you can be drawn into these ideas and think that it's fun and think that you're being included as a part of something that gradually is introducing you to more and more dangerous ideas that are hard, that can be hard to come back from. And that's why people call it falling down the rabbit hole. It's not exactly falling down the rabbit hole. People make choices. These are not passive, you know, stumbles entirely, but it is um, seductive to young men who maybe lack a sense of belonging or feeling isolated or feel like they want some kind of heroic engagement or purpose. And so, you know, just like with teenagers, what we found with health education, for example, is it's far more effective to teach teenagers how they're being manipulated by fast food advertisements than it is to teach them 
about, you know, what healthy eating habits look like for themselves 30, 40 years down the line. If you, if they learn about manipulation and advertisements, they're more likely to make healthy choices moving forward. And I think that's the goal with some of our work too, is to help them understand how they get manipulated to serve somebody else's objectives. Well, if you want to avoid falling down that right wing rabbit hole, Cynthia Miller Idris's new book, Hating the Homeland, the New Global Far Right, is an important contribution to this incredibly uh, important new literature. Uh, Cynthia, I know you're stuck in DC. Uh, what else should people be reading in these weird, surreal times? So on the, on the, uh, the, the culture side, uh, there's a really good book that I recommend that just came out this year by Julia Ebner. I've got it right here called Going Dark the secret social lives of extremists. And she um, spent time uh, surreptitiously being kind of underground in, in, in everyday online communities with other, um, with her roles, uh, almost as a journalist essentially, and um, has a lot of really great things and findings about how, uh, how it works online, how people get manipulated. And then I would also really recommend um, the, this recent book by Sam Jackson that just came out called Oath Keepers. Uh, and it's about the militia movement um, and the anti-government movement. And I think because we're gonna see and have seen really rapidly escalating militia and vigilante violence, um, and that will probably continue around the election and inauguration, uh, that is a, a really in-depth look into one of those groups and to understand where this kind of concept of fighting against tyranny and the next revolution is coming from. Uh, and so those are two books I would really recommend for folks who want to understand both the online youth culture and some of the anti-government militia. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.